All right, if you're still there in Mark uh, chapter 4, if you're not turned back there, that's where we're going to be looking at. And this message is entitled, The Gospel of Peace. Not too long ago, we, we talked about peace a lot. Remember, uh, I think it was a three or four part series, Remember Peace. I think it was a three part series. And I had some leftover notes, and I've been thinking about some different things about peace. And um, that text that Al read is where we're going to be uh, kind of hanging out. But we're going to be going to other other verses. But as we uh, search the scriptures and look at what it says about the gospel, you know, the gospel is, is sort of like a diamond in that it's multifaceted. We've talked about this before. You can see the gospel and even even preach the gospel from different angles, just like a fine cut diamond has many different angles that shine. We're used to calling the gospel, I think, for the most part here, the gospel of grace. I mean, that's what we named our group. And um, a lot of times we'll use the phrase gospel of Christ. And both are scriptural phrases. But if you go through the scripture and do a search, the gospel of, you'll find uh, the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of our salvation, the gospel of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Those are just a few examples of some of the phrases that are used after the gospel of. Today I want to look at another one that I hadn't named. It is the gospel of peace. That's listed in the scripture too. Now that exact phrase, a lot of times in Bible software you can look up Different varieties of the way you search for things. If you click on exact phrase and you put gospel of peace, you'll find, I'm going to say three or four references. But if you look up gospel, you're going to find a lot of references. And then after gospel, there'll be explanations that have to do with peace, which brings that idea together. And a lot of times you'll just look up the word peace. And then the same thing, you'll find in the context, you'll, you'll hear him talking about the gospel or something about the personal work of Christ. So this idea is it's all over the place. Uh, just because that exact phrase, gospel peace, is only listed three or four times, don't uh, discredit it because, uh, as I said, there's more to it than that. In this message, we want to see the idea or the truth of peace by seeing, of course, the author of peace, or as the scripture calls him, the prince of peace, the Lord Jesus Christ. I wanna, you don't have to turn there. If you're taking notes, you might want to jot these references down, but there's a few verses here I'm just going to quote. The prophet Isaiah says about Christ in Isaiah 9, 6, you're familiar with this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be on his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So there is uh, one of his names, and that's uh, connected to our topic today. Of course, in the other messages, we talked about the value of having uh, peace of mind and the peace that has to do with our conscience how that that is priceless because when you have no peace and you're overwhelmed with uh, guilt and shame, it's not fun. It's a very heavy burden. Some people even kill themselves. I think I had mentioned one time uh, in times past, 
Me and Rob uh, used to have a Bible study with this one guy, Sovereign Grace Baptist guy, years ago, back in the 80s, who was a psychologist for a pretty large company, and he would counsel people. And he said the most crazy people and the most depressed people were religious people, especially those that believed that they could lose their salvation. He said those people were a mess because of the lack of peace because of that false gospel they were under. But believers, we can find a hope in the God of peace, knowing that one of God's names is Jehovah Shalom, which means Jehovah is peace. It's one of his very names. And he's not named in vain. Of course, one of the commandments is not to use his name in vain. If he's got a name that means that, we should probably understand that and use that uh, as we meditate and talk to him. And all of this is clarified in the gospel of grace, the gospel of peace, the gospel of Christ. And uh, because it is sent, this gospel is sent to bring healing to our, our minds and give us peace. Something that's not just some abstract thing that we look at and say, that's oh, neat theology. It's something that we, we utilize, we apply. Here's a, another verse, Romans 10, 15. It says, when I read this, I read this different than most pastors. Um, this is talking about anybody that preaches the gospel, uh, official preacher, which, you know, the layman, clergyman distinction, which is uh, kind of a Roman Catholic idea. Romans ten fifteen it says, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. And bring glad tidings, which means good news. Glad tidings of good things. Now that's a quote from actually Isaiah 52, 7. That's where that came from. So we as the body of Christ uh, participate in the service of ministry. Just That's kind of redundant. It's a service of service. That's what we do. We serve people with the gospel. We serve each other with the gospel. And we are told in doing that to put on... The whole armor of God. Some of you are familiar with that section in Ephesians 6 where it talks about the whole armor of God and goes to, talks about the helmet, the breastplate, and all these things. Well, uh, verse 15 of Ephesians 6, it says, And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So this is something in the ingredients of the gospel. This is something that's in the, if you're talking like spiritual warfare, this is part of the tactical gear in spiritual warfare, the gospel of peace, knowing it, utilizing it, talking about it, promoting it, and defending it. Now, this gospel of peace, it tells us of the one and final sacrifice that was better than all the other peace offerings. If you look at the word peace, and you do a search in the Old Testament, when you're in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, you'll see peace offering, peace offering, peace offering. And you know what? We know from reading Hebrews, none of that stuff worked. You know, it only showed the Messiah, the mediator that was to come and be the one in shedding the blood of the new covenant. And it would be sufficient and satisfactory because the peace offerings of the old covenant were not sufficient nor satisfactory because they continued to be offered. I want us to see Christ at work here. And draw some spiritual like parallels out of our text in Mark 4. 
you know, I don't know what to call some of these metaphors. They're not types, but I think I'm comfortable with uh, the word parallels. You'll see as we go along. Verse 36, Mark 4, 36. And when they had sent away the crowd, they took him with them as he was in the boat. And there were also other little boats with him. So it seemed like there was a big boat and their little boats kind of connected. I don't know if they were self-floating or tied up. I'm not sure, but it was a sort of like a posse. They were cruising. And um, verse 37, And there arose a windstorm, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was now full. Now we know this principle that everything without exception. All things are done for the glory of God. No matter how we see them, whether they're positive or negative, it doesn't matter how we see them. All things God will get glory from. He controls all things, and it's it's kind of cool. It's kind of a no-brainer that since he controls all things, he works all things so that he will get glory from all things. No matter how much the world is screaming at you, Saying, yeah, there's a God. Look at this world. What well, it's chaotic. Yeah, he he knows exactly what he's doing. He's controlling everything. It doesn't matter who's in charge on Earth, who's picked. Doesn't matter. You turn on the news and hear all the negativity. None of that matters. He's in control, and it's for all his glory. Just as God raised up Pharaoh to make his power known, we're familiar with that reading in in Romans, which is talking about the Old Testament. That story, he raised Pharaoh up to make his power known. God also decreed sin so that Christ could come and make peace by the blood of his cross and conquer sin and to make his redemptive glory known. So where it says there, and there arose a windstorm. And you got to ask yourself, put these things in perspective. Here's Christ among these boats. And there arose a windstorm. Did this windstorm arise by chance? And we know the answer. God is the God of the whirlwind, it says in the Old Testament. He controls the weather. And here's Christ in this boat. He's the one that created the world. He's the creator of the world. So it didn't happen by chance. The word arose here means uh, to cause to be, to become, to be brought to pass, to be assembled to be ordained. Keep your place there in uh, in Mark, and let's go to Isaiah 45, a very familiar text. But I want us to. We haven't gone there in a while, but this it's probably one of my one of my favorites. Probably one of the strongest sovereignty of God sections in the Scripture. Isaiah 45, starting in verse five. Isaiah also, if you're taking notes, Isaiah 46, six through nine is probably another popular one that is really strong in the sovereignty of God. But here in uh, Isaiah 45, 5, I am Jehovah, and there is none else. No God besides me. Now, we, we should use our presuppositional apologetics and presuppose what God says is true here about himself, that he is the only God that there is. So we are not polytheists. We don't believe in multiple gods. We believe that there is one God. And he's the only one. And then he, he piles on now talking about his attributes except after this. 
I clothed you, though you have not known me. Verse 6, they that may know me from the rising of the sun to the sunset, that there is none besides me. He's going over it again because it's pretty important. There's none besides me. I am Jehovah and there is none else. So we see the exclusiveness of God. There are no other gods. In other words, any other God that says there are God is a small g false God. And they are subservient to him. And what's he do? Verse 70. Forming the light and creating darkness. Making peace. That's why I brought us here because that word peace. Making peace and creating evil. I, Jehovah, do all these things. Drop down from above, O heavens, and let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let salvation bear fruit. And let righteousness spring up together. I, Jehovah, have created it. So he creates all things for his glory. The things that we think are negative, the things that we know for sure are positive because we're benefactors of them, spiritual blessings that are in Christ, which here specifically talks about the righteousness that we um, get from Christ, given to us, put on our account. But he makes peace, here it says. He makes peace and creates evil. Um, some other verse in the Old Testament, I can't remember where it was, Kings, I think, or something, I can't remember, but I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. He talks about these opposing things, and he does it all. He's in control of it all, and again, it's all for his glory. Go ahead and go back to Mark, and when you're going back, I'm going to quote one more verse. Isaiah 26, 12 says, Jehovah, you will ordain peace for us. For you also have worked all your works in us, all of our works in us. So he controls all things. And if there's any peace to be, he has ordained it. He's gone out ahead of it and predestined it, foreordained it by his sovereignty and, and his all his other attributes, his wisdom and so on and so forth. Verse 37 of uh, Mark 4, let's go on. It says, And there rose a windstorm. And notice this, the waves beat into the boat. The waves beat into the boat. There's some parallel thoughts here about what's going on here in connection with us as God's people. What we have experienced, especially in the past, before, before and during uh, coming to Christ. The greatest windstorm that we personally ever faced is that burden. I was just talking about it a second ago, the lack of peace. That burden that bore down on us of sin, guilt, and condemnation because our conscience told us that there was a holy uh, wrath coming our way and that justice was coming to us. We, we felt that we felt that coming at us, and we thought, we just need to be reconciled. And of course, we produced a righteousness of our own until the gospel straightened that, that mess out. But that's our, that's our greatest windstorm we ever faced. I mean, that's uh, a hurricane, tsunami. I mean, as far as in our minds, no peace. 
in our minds at that point. We read verses like, and uh, still do, the wages of sin is death. I remember as a youngster going to church and just hearing legalism and the law, and um, they gave me stuff to do, and, and all the different going down the aisle, and all the rededications, and did I repent right? Did I say the prayer right? If I found out, I had to say it out loud. So, you know, all this goofy religious stuff. I watched scary movies of prophecy um, about the mark of the beast and all that. And I, and I thought, if I miss the rapture, I guess I got to get my head cut off so I can go to heaven. You know, so I was making all these plans ahead of time. And I did some kind of goofy thing like Harold Camping did when I was 12. I, uh, I figured out a date myself. And it was sometime in 1976, which I was 12. And that was the year I made my first false profession after seeing one of those scary movies. Thief in the Night was the name of the movie. But no peace, constant fear, making constant making adjustments. Did I do it right? Did I do enough? And I would make an adjustment, and the burden would quickly, shortly thereafter, get back on my back again. So... Knowing the wages of sin is death, and I need a reconciliation. We all went through this to a certain extent. The strength of sin's condemnation is an incredible force. We know that. This is, this is how you hear people like MacArthur. He said, I can't remember a time when I didn't believe. He didn't experience any of this stuff that we're talking about. Billy Graham's wife said the same thing. But it only takes, we know this, it only takes one sin to condemn us, right? We read that in uh, in a few places, but specifically James 2.10 says this, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. So this law is a unit that God says, Cursed is he that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, here's the law. God says, I'm perfect. I demand absolute. I only demand absolute perfection all the time from you. Now, here's that law. Now, go ahead. Well, if you don't continually keep it all the time, forever, you're condemned. You're, you're, you're under that curse. That's a system of the curse. Well, of course, we know that can't be done. Habakkuk says this in chapter 1 of verse 13. Speaking of God, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity. What this is saying is God can't look on it and let it go. He must, in other words, he must punish sin. That's what the other verse we could. The wages of sin is death. So, He's so holy and so pure that when he sees sin, it's either going to be punished in the person of Christ or it's going to be punished in you. It's got to be paid for somehow. God's justice demands an answer. So God, in the sense, if we look at the parallel here, he owes these waves of wrath that the wrath of waves were hitting the boat. He owes that, his his own attribute of wrath, he owes that because of his justice and his holiness and his righteousness. He owes that to us in our condemned state. 
And those waves, you deserve to be hit by them because the wages of sin is death. Because of your own sin, you deserve that beating of the waves of wrath. There's a similar, there's another parallel with uh, Noah and the ark. And, you know, they put pitch on the ark, which is the root word of propitiation. And that kept the waves from destroying the boat and kept the boat from leaking. So there, there are some other things there that we could spend more time on, but we have to move along here. So his holiness and his law and justice demands this wrath. Notice also toward the end of uh, verse 37, it says that these waves beat into the boat so that it was now full of water, in other words. So it just didn't smack the side. It came over. And if you have a vessel, you know, if you fill it up with water and you're in it, you know, it's a scary deal, especially here because there was, you know, this was, this was crazy weather. These guys were afraid, no doubt about it. I wouldn't want to be in this. I'm not real good with water. And, um, you know, I talk a lot about the sovereignty of God. Like when I'm at work sometime, there's bad weather. I say, I wish God would just rip this roof off this place like a can opener. So we can go home <laughs> and let their insurance pay us for however long we're off. If that's the way that works, I don't know. But if that thing started peeling off, I'd probably get down someplace, you know, and hide. So we're big talkers when it comes to stuff like that. So the boat was full of water. The water came crashing inside the boat where they were, where, the, where of course, you think you normally have safety, Right. We were, before conversion and during that time, having our eyes open, finally starting to see what was going on, we were full of sin. We were guilty. Everything, it's, the scripture says, even to the non-elect, the plowing of the ground, which in and of itself, you think, oh, that farmer out there, he's busting his tail in, he's plowing that ground, he's going to, you know, it seems good. You know, because I don't like to plow ground. I like to come and work sit on the couch, you know, and get on the computer or hang out on the back deck with Becky or eat and get a snack later and eat some more. I don't want to plow the ground. I'm lazy. But that guy out there, he's maybe a, a non-elect. He's plowing the ground. God says that the plowing of the ground for the non-elect is sin. Everything that he does, everything is sin because whatever is not of faith is sin. And he's doing it with a bad account. All his sins are imputed to him. He's got Adam's sin imputed to him. Everything he does is done by a crooked, perverted motive. And God doesn't count anything good toward him. He looks at that person. He says, there's none good. No, not one. There's none righteous. The guy doesn't understand. And he doesn't come to Christ. So when we were in that state, you know, before conversion, we were there. We were, we were full. We were plumb ate up with sin and didn't even know how to fix it. Our fixing it was our worst problem because it was the worst blasphemous sin that we could commit as self-righteousness, which was competing with the righteousness of Christ, which is a spit in the face of the glory of God. And we just dug our heels in and did it. I know I did. So we were over our head in debt because of this sin. Knowing what we know now, 
we know that about God, it, it's, it's a great comfort to know that God decreed and purposed sin, the fall of Adam, rather than just merely permitting it. We understand that now. We see a, a greater purpose. It was to design the fall, decree the fall of the first Adam for the glory of the second or the last Adam to come in and take care of the sin issue and to present us way better than Adam ever thought about being at creation. Verse 38, and he was in the hinder part of the ship. Some of the other versions talk about he was in the stern of the ship. One, one version renders it, he was in the bottom of the ship in a corner. So in other words, he wasn't up where the, the water was splashing in. Remember in Exodus 33, we looked there the last message that I did two weeks ago, where Moses said, show me your glory. He asked God, show me your glory. Let's go ahead and turn to Exodus 33 if you want to. Some, some weren't here then. Exodus 33, 18. We're going to draw a parallel here between this text talking about peace and Christ in the boat, asleep in the boat, in the hinder parts of the boat. Exodus 33, 18. And he said, I beseech you, it means beg, I beseech you, let me see your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will proclaim my name of Jehovah before you. And here's what's connected in the context of his name. He's already mentioned his goodness. And he's talking about his name. And then connected to that, he says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So we see God's sovereignty directly connected to, of course, who he is, his attributes, and that's connected to his name. And as far as these other things about him, he's going to be particular about who he shows that to. He's going to reveal to some, hide it from others. And then he says this, notice in verse 20, he says, he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And Jehovah said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand upon a rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Now this is this is talking about this is talking about Christ. This is talking about the mediator. This is talking about where we're hidden in Christ. Look at uh the next verse, there, the last one we're going to read. And I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back parts, my hinder parts, but my face you can't see. So we see a parallel here that we, we deal with God through a mediator. And, you know, I, even further, I, I thought about our lack of perfect vision, even now. We know we don't we don't have perfect knowledge. We're always accused of that. We lack a perfect vision of God on so many levels. But it is enough. It's plenty enough. But we do have what God has given and what He's revealed 
for Christ to save us to the uttermost. Right? So we don't need a perfect knowledge. We just need a knowledge of a perfect Christ. There is a difference. There's a difference. Big difference. So the scripture says, Paul says, we see through a glass darkly or dimly. But you know what? We see through a glass. Doesn't say we're blind. We're seeing through that glass. And of course, we know God gives gifts. We progress in the grace of knowledge of our Lord. And we seemingly can see through that glass a little bit better, even though it's still darkly or dimly. But we can see through it. We're not blind. God doesn't leave us out in the desert like we were before. And also on top of that, God does a lot of hiding. We, we see here, I mean, he reveals himself to some, hides himself to others. I mean, you could do a series on how God hides himself. I thank you, O Father, heaven and earth, that you have hid these things from the wise and the prudent, and you revealed them unto babes. And he turns around and said, you wise and prudent, it's going to be more tolerable for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's going to be for you in judgment. I mean, he still holds these people accountable that he has blinded and hidden himself from. So, and he gets glory from that. That's part of his person, his name that he gets glory out of. Continuing with the thought here on, on God showing himself or, and, and our weakness and, and then the reprobate's blindness. In Isaiah 53, 2, it says, For he comes up before him as a tender plant, and out of a root, out of a dry ground, he has no form nor majesty that we should see him, no beauty that we should desire him. So in other words, Christ, when he was on earth, he, he wasn't this one that's viewed like the, like the Jewish nation, thought he was going to come in splendor and deliver him, and he was going to be some, you know, maybe star-looking guy. He was, as far as physically, his, his face and his, you know, these things were not like something that stood out among the crowd. He was just, because he was humble, and the plan was for him to humble himself and and just be among the common people. You couldn't look at him and say, there's God. This is God inside that shell. You couldn't see that. That's This is another way of hiding. Now, there are people that were believers. They knew who that person was. They could see who he was because of a revelation of who he was. So it goes on and on and on the way that God hides himself. You couldn't see who he was with the physical eye that he was God. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 say, But made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant. And he was made to the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So there's this idea of emptying himself of what he deserves and how he should act and be around people like a, like a king and, a, and God. Because we know if we have power, what we do with it. Christ, he, he played low key. And he knew that was what he had to do because he came to die. And uh, this, and I've said it before, is the hardest thing for me to come to grips with because this idea of self-preservation and uh, showing that I myself personally am number one to myself and I need respect 
and on and on. These things about me, 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 myself, and I, it's hard to, to see this humility and to, to practice it. I mean, we, we learn. We're slow learners, but this is our main problem right here is our pride and our self-righteousness and so on and so forth. Our self-worth, our self-esteem. We've got too much of it. Joel Osteen, those guys, and uh, Robert Schuller. So don't tell people they're sinners. It will injure their self-esteem. We've got too much of that. We're born with too much of that. It's our problem. Even when Christ was hanging on the cross, God turned the lights out and hid that activity. It's just another layer of hiding whom he was. And, and, and we see it. We get glimpses of it in the scripture. And, of course, we can grow in that. And we see him clearer. But the clearest we will see him is when we see him face to face. We won't have that sinful bias on our minds that are messing us up in our questions that we might have. Those things will probably drop. Probably won't have that many, as many questions as we think we have now because we won't be sinful in our thoughts. So that garbage gets in the way. Verse 38 of Mark 4 says, you know, he was in the hinder part of the ship asleep. It says on a pillow, but it was, it was part of the ship. It was a, a headrest. So we see Christ here with plenty of faith, plenty of patience, plenty of his own self-esteem, which he deserved. In this mode here as our humble mediator, and he had, of course, at this time, the same essence of attributes as the Father, as it says in Hebrews 1. Christ knows everything is going to be okay. Everything, again, is going to be on schedule. He's not afraid. But the disciples thought that they were all going to perish. Note the accusation there um, toward Christ that he didn't even care. He said, don't you even care that we're going to perish? You know, I kind of brought this up just a little while ago. Why do we know about God's sovereignty? We can, I mean, you can read A.W. Pink's book on the sovereignty of God and salvation. He talks about creation and providence and salvation. You can, you can read that and know that stuff in and out. But when something comes up in your life, when a rubber meets the road, whether it be in providence or whether it has something to do with the way you think about salvation, in real life application, you get anxious, you have fears, and you have doubts. It continues to happen, and I know nobody's perfect in this area, and I know how to fix it. It's you keep training over and over and over again and keep growing. And I'm not talking about progressive sanctification at all. I don't think anything exists. But I just brought that up that what these people are doing here, these disciples, we do that sometimes, and it's to our shame. So we can't look at these guys and make fun of them in hindsight, having the whole canon of Scripture and having uh, 2,000 years of theological works of the, of the early church written. We're guilty of this uh, sometimes too. It says in verse 39, he arose. It, it's talking about he's getting ready to do something here. So he stood up, right? There was a need here. And just as he arose from rest out of this boat here, asleep, to deal with this chaos, because these people were afraid, they woke him up, just like he did that, Christ arose off of his throne, anointed of God, sin of God, 
to condescend down to the level of sinful man, to humble himself, to take away the wrath of the storm of sin, guilt, condemnation for his people. He stood up to go lower himself because he was seated before. That's where he's seated now. But he came down and humbled him. So we just read it in Philippians 2. So from his throne, he arose with authority, with covenant authority. He had a covenant with his father that this was going to take place. He arose with power and capability to do the job. And he arose with wisdom to do the job. He, he's, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. And he's going to get the job done. No doubt about it. Now compare that, that truth, that blessed truth of, of God can't fail. He doesn't fail. He never has failed. And he accomplishes salvation. That's the most important thing to him is redemptive glory. Compare that to, and we, and we thought this way in time past, let God do this or that, that language. Uh, if, if you would just allow God to do this and that, work in your life, you know, you'd be blessed. Um, Christ has done all he can do now the rest is up to you that's using the Lord's name in vain that's what that is in a religious aspect it's using the Lord's name in vain it's blasphemy so thank God that he stopped our mouths and changed our minds about that attitude because we don't let God do anything verse 39 after he arose what did he do he rebuked the wind and said unto the sea peace be still and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself. That's what he did. He made peace by the blood of his cross. His propitiation, and that, that word propitiation means it, his satisfaction of law and justice. He is the propitiation. But his sacrifice, who he is and what he did, the propitiation made the wrath of God be still. It stopped it and brought in peace. Peace and reconciliation is pretty much the same idea, same word, really, interchanged a lot of times in translations. Whereas God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. We're familiar with that verse, 2 Corinthians 2.19. Reconciling the world, making peace between the world of believers that he loves the remnant of both the Jews and Gentiles. And he did it by the blood of his cross. And what was the result? He didn't impute their sins to them because they were imputed to Christ. Two verses down, it says that in that same chapter. Back in verse uh, 40, And he said unto them, Why are you fearful? Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Listen to those two verses here. Romans 5, 1. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice of the hope of the glory of God. No faith, no peace. Simple as that. No faith, no assurance. No assurance, no peace. They go hand in hand. Lastly, Verse 41, and they feared exceedingly and said one to another, 
what manner of man is this? It means what what kind what kind of guy is what we haven't seen this before. What manner of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Well, I mean, he created the seas and the winds. That was easy for Christ to do. All he said was, peace be still. Just like he said, let there be the seas. Let there be the wind. Just as well as he spoke, he said, because he's, he's the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the one in whom all things consist. He just says, stop, stop, move. He's, it's easy. It's nothing. He's, it, God is not like a computer that only has so many um, gigabytes. I think really people think that. Or he's not concerned with something so minute. Everything's connected and God's in control of all of it. All the means. So it kind of leaves you with this, uh, you know, this idea that, that he's brought before many people's attention after he did so many different things. He says, what think ye of Christ? Uh, whose son is he? You know, th these are the things that Christ presses these things on people. And um, so that more questions are asked to get to an end and answer. If you're God's people, sometimes he'll hide that from the non-elect. Or he'll hide it from his elect until a, a certain time. But uh, all that really is done in his sovereignty. So we know he, he's out of control. We can't. <laughs> he's, I think it was Tim James that said that God is cosmically out of control. Uh, we have an anchor. What page is that? 